Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. The further we go with crypto, the bigger the task of bringing people along gets. Between dApps, DAOs, DeFi, NFTs, and beyond, the industry has a language of its own that outsiders often look at through a combination of skepticism and mysticism. With the explosive growth and market volatility we've seen recently, one theme keeps emerging in all of our conversations. Education is key. As the industry matures, how we're communicating about the technology and who we're communicating with is more important than ever. On this show, we've discussed how this might take place with governments, consumers, nutritional financial actors. We've also seen recent headlines of high-profile educational efforts like Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z's Bitcoin Academy, and the emphasis on education and proposed legislation like the Lummis Gillibrand Bill in the United States. In the U.S., we've also seen these educational efforts being especially resonant in historically excluded communities. According to a University of Chicago survey, 44% of crypto purchases are not white, and 55% do not have a college degree. Now, unsurprisingly, higher levels of knowledge are correlated with more optimism about the technology, and that's especially true in high-growth economies. A global survey of over 9,500 people published by Block last month found that 51% of those not buying Bitcoin selected don't know enough about it as the reason. But the same survey found the highest levels of optimism in Nigeria, India, Vietnam, Argentina, and South Africa, which were also the countries with the highest claimed levels of cryptocurrency knowledge. These are also countries with lower per capita GDP and a highly remittance-based GDP. So that's our focus for today, education in high-growth economies, and specifically, those that are focused on training the next generation of users, developers, and creators. New models for getting people to understand and use blockchain technology are popping up all over the world. It's core to a question we ask regularly on this show, how do we build with the communities that this technology is aiming to serve? I'm excited to have two guests today who are pioneering approaches to education in Africa and the Americas. Oluwaseyun David Adepoju is head of research at the Africa Blockchain Institute and the editor of the Africa Blockchain Report. He is a technology thought leader with over a decade of experience working in the African technology and innovation ecosystem. The Africa Blockchain Institute is a think tank that works in a variety of areas, including hosting a blockchain summer bootcamp for teens aged 13 through 19. They are also one of the partners on the Web3-a-thon, a hyper-local and people-first hackathon that's been put on with collaboration with Coindesk and the Crypto Research and Design Lab. Second guest, Rhonda Eldridge, is the founder of Harness All Possibilities Incorporated in the USA and Harness All Possibilities in the Bahamas. Among other projects, she's working with the Central Bank of the Bahamas on an August 3rd through 6, 2022 pitch-a-thon for the Sand Dollar, which is the CBDC of the Bahamas inviting students and people in island communities to learn and trust digital payments and sharing their knowledge and ideas about adoption. There are some young developers involved in this project as well, teaching teachers and other students about blockchain and coding. Before we chat with our guests, let's bring in my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hey, Sheila. Good to see you again. We've been apart for a few weeks. It's been a while. That's right. That's right. It's been really fun to kind of uh, really get into the details of what we did at Consensus and then revisit some of our favorite episodes. But Glad to be back with you doing uh, some fresh content here, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a very important topic. I mean, I think coming off of all of this sort of disruption in the marketplace and the awareness of 
how, I don't know, misplaced some of the priorities were in terms of how the technology has been applied in these sort of speculative environments. Uh, one would hope that, that solid education is the kind of thing that might actually have kept some of these sort of wilder schemes in check. So, uh, you know, I think, it's, I think it's a very timely topic. Yeah, well, also we've seen, since we last were together, we've seen a lot of activity on the policy front, both in Europe, with Mika and the U.S., with bills that have, you know, come through proposals. And, and to me, fundamentally, what this oil boils down to is what do people understand the value of crypto and blockchain technology to be? And that is really a question rooted in education and the level of sophistication they have about that. Uh, so I'd love to bring in our guests and hand it over to them to kind of walk us through this. But first, maybe some level setting on context. So Rhonda, let's start with you. You've been engaged with blockchain mm-hmm. the ecosystem for, for quite some time now. And I'd love to hear from you about the atmosphere in the islands. How are these recent mm-hmm. market downturns and the volatility being, being perceived? I think that for most people, the small person or the, the person out there who didn't really know much about the technology, they're being hurt. And obviously, big players understand the markets, they understand trends, they understand volatility, they know when they see the, the downward trend, what's going to happen. I feel that, you know, for those who were, have not been in the space, they're like, well, didn't really miss anything there. There's just another, you know, sort of balloon. And for those who are in the space, I mean, just recently today, I'm in one of the groups of someone who is very, very high on crypto was saying, look, are firms, are audit firms hiring? Are there individuals out there hiring? So they're of the view that, look, you know, they, they can't just rely on crypto. They've got to have something to sustain and help them. And I do that personally as well. And we've talked about that with people. Do not put your life savings into this new industry, particularly if you don't understand it. So my fear right now is that those who didn't understand this uh, technology, and I keep telling them it's code well enough, they're the ones that are being hurt because they think, oh, I'm going to get rich quick. And of course, they don't understand the volatility. They don't understand trends. They don't have access to that, perhaps. So um, I think it's been a bit unnerving. And for those sitting on the sidelines, they feel, well, there you go. I didn't get excited about it. Hmm. That's fascinating. Although, Shane, I see you nodding a bit. Is, is that mimicked uh, across Africa? I know you work across a lot of different countries on the continent. Is, is that similar to what you're seeing? Or is there a different attitude towards crypto, perhaps? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities in um, the situation with the downturn of the market. A lot of people entered the crypto market because there's the narrative that you can eat it big and make a lot of money from the market. And I think a lot of people setting up investment companies for crypto, they they don't like education because they ride on the ignorance of the people to raise funds uh, from the people. And I can tell you that a lot of people are actually feeling the heat in Africa now because those who entered the market without education, without understanding of what the crypto market is all about. Many of them have put their retirement savings because uh, they've been promised that it will make 200% or 300% of their investment in just a short time. But now we can see that a lot of people are going back to their job. People are looking for new jobs. A lot of people have put all their life savings in crypto, especially in West Africa. So the situation is the same with what she said. Uh, Weston, that's a really interesting take on this, that we've got these people who have exploited the lack of education to take advantage of them. And if you look at a lot of the scams, a lot of the excesses in the space, uh, it's almost as if uh, education is a way to provide a bulwark for decentralization, that it actually empowers people not to put all of their savings into the hands of these essentially centralizing institutions. 
So what, what are the next steps then? I mean, how do, you, how do you use this particular moment to build the educational process going forward? For, uh, thank you so much, Michael. For us, we, we have a lot of initiatives to keep to educate people. First of all, we believe that education um, is the foundation for understanding the technology and to innovate correctly. In these current times, what we, what we are doing currently is to have a series of webinars and seminars, um, virtually and also physically, where we are working from, to educate people about, the, uh, first of all, the importance and the potentials of the blockchain technology and not just crypto. I think the hype about crypto and abandoning the ideologies behind blockchain technology itself is problematic. When people understand the blockchain technology, they would be able to understand that crypto is just one out of thousands of use cases mm -hmm. of the blockchain technology. And when they want to invest and enter the market, they are entering with a level of information that makes them stable even when the market is unstable, right? So we've had three sessions of seminars and workshops virtually, two virtually, one physically for crypto enthusiasts and, and people who love the blockchain technology to really understand what it is and not just an investment vehicle where you can make a lot of money. And I, I concur. Sorry, go ahead. Um. Rhonda, you know, you, you've been working particularly with younger people. In fact, you brought a whole load of them to consensus, which we were thrilled about. The uh, young, younger uh, students, you know, high school age students in the Bahamas. What is the approach you take to them? Because clearly this is a really mm -hmm. foundational age. You know, they, mm -hmm. this is making them sort of hopefully crypto literate or blockchain literate at this early stage of life. What is the focus there in terms of what you're expecting to build going forward on, on these younger people's education? So I think, I think for the younger folks, they don't have the history of the markets. They don't have the history of a lot of what we may have seen. So they come in not knowing anything. So I think they're, they learn faster. The students we've targeted have been students who have an aptitude and a curiosity about the digital world. Some of them have never had any exposure at all. And the thing is, they just really absorb it. They don't have anything to judge it or sort of compare it to. So we found that those students have been fantastic. And then the second part of that is, well, particularly with the students we worked with last year, the one kid started at 10 or 11, and he was introduced to coding last year, and then he went on to become a blockchain developer. I did not know he was 13. I mean, he was in the group. I just saw his name. And what was interesting about that is that we then, had, after many, um, about three years speaking with teachers, we had those students speak to the teachers. And they were fascinated by the questions and, the, well, the answers that those students had. So I think that was an eye-opener for all of us, that we needed to use the students to teach the teachers who can go back into the classroom having an understanding of how the students were seeing this technology. And I remember a headmaster, um, and actually he is the president of some of the schools in the Bahamas, so he's, I think he has access to 13 schools. He asked a few questions about how did you hear about this in your community? Are your friends doing this? And they're like, no. <laughs> but we decided it seemed interesting. But what, when some of those kids came through the program and they were interviewed by top blockchain firms, they were blown away. These are kids who understood nothing about it like a year before. And we got, you know, persons to help them with their resumes and put GitHub, their GitHub, you know, projects on GitHub. 
I think people were surprised. So using them as, how should I put an engine of impact or an engine of, of scaling, it makes sense because they go back into their homes. Michael, would you fail to, I don't know if you knew this, but their parents came with them for the boys, their mothers, all the mothers came because they're like, they love this. They're spending hours on this. And therefore I need to come because I need to learn. And that's how you take it back into the communities, into the homes, to the parents who then say, you know what? I need to learn this too, because my kid seems to be really, really engaged and enlightened by the possibilities of Web3 for themselves. Yeah, there was a, there was a great anecdote oh, yeah. that you shared at one point, uh, Rhonda, about a mother that I think had been on some Odyssey four-hour boat ride, and then somebody broke a leg or something, and then they had to fly, and they, they finally made it to wrong. Austin for the <laughs> consensus. But the level of dedication was impressive. I'm sorry, other Western yeah. please uh, come in. A lot of, uh, for example, the blockchain summer bootcamp that we um, have every year, we did Accra last year. This year, we are doing the next one in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, in the next two weeks. And it's interesting to connect with what she said. We had a parent last year when we did in Accra, there was a mother who came with um, a child from a place that was five hours drive away from Accra, Ghana. And she stayed throughout for two weeks to stay with her son. because And this was a 12-year-old boy. The landscape is still very filled with a lot of misconceptions, but I'm really optimistic and I'm also glad that a lot of young people by themselves looking towards self-development, many of them, you only need to give them a lead and then they stay online for 24 hours looking for what is blockchain, what is Web3, what is crypto, you know, and I believe in Africa by 2060, it's been predicted that Africa is going to have the youngest workforce in the world. And this is encouraging for us because the engines of the future of work in Africa are these young people, and they are taking the bulls by the horn. And I believe that there's a slogan in Africa that uh, we should catch them young. And I believe the best way to catch them young is to you know, support those who want to do self-development and also encourage those who are looking for the knowledge, but they could not get the knowledge by themselves for us to support them, to learn, to understand, and to innovate with the technology. So I love so many things about this. I love the idea of uh, taking advantage of uh, an open, a wide aperture, right? So, so a lot of the folks that you're working with, these students, they may not be crypto literate or crypto native at the outset, but they are digitally native and digitally literate. And so I talk a lot about my own children who are a lot younger than the age we're talking about, but who are certainly digitally fluent, right? I mean, the thing, the thing is like attached to them in ways that are Pros and cons, right? But they certainly have an intuitive <laughs> understanding of mediating an online and offline reality. And they're very actually savvy about which is which. And I think a lot of the confusion we talk about kind of don't understand what's happening online and data and this and that. My children intuitively have an understanding of what to share, when to hold back, what to do. It's just kind of innate to them, right? So there's a lot of that that I think breeds a, a more sophisticated, nuanced psychological understanding of the benefits of decentralization and technology that I do think that a lot of youth are poised to capitalize on. So I'm just curious to, to how you think about this concept of growing a crypto native you know, generation and the work that you're doing. And do you approach these young folks as digitally native? Do you kind of, where do you start with, with them, I suppose, on their journey? I think the most important thing is you have to meet them where they are. And the other thing that's extremely important is somehow you need to look like them, be able to speak their language, understand them. 
so that you're not going in there with something that's totally above, like, you know, I don't understand what you're saying. So there's this um, need to be culturally aware and to be humble in many ways, because you, you're going to learn so much from them. I think that's been where I found success. You know, in the Caribbean, you know, there's certain like nuances or certain things that you need to be more aware of and culturally aware of in particular, because not every Caribbean island, like not every country in Africa is the same. So I think it's important when I, for me anyway, when I went in, they looked at me and they saw someone who looked like them. And when I'm more relaxed, particularly in the Bahamas, I talk very differently. And Michael, I know you've never heard me speak, you know, in that way, but they then feel connected. If that's the right word, Sheila and Michael, I think that's the key. That's been what I found has been helpful. Yeah, good from our side. I think I relate with what she said. We go to, to communities where we want to really educate young people. We go to those communities. We stay there. We stay with them for the period of time we're doing the training. We interact with our leaders there. We interact with parents. We interact with stakeholders. And I think when we look at the digital natives and the technology-adapted generation, for the technology-adapted generation, it is, I think it's very hard to explain uh, blockchain technology to them because they, first of all, do not understand decentralization. But for young people that we can refer to as uh, technology-born generation, it's easier for them to become digital natives because they, they have some background understanding of the internet. They have some background understanding of some technological nuances, and then they can understand it better. I think uh, the biggest problem that we're facing right now is how to explain the blockchain technology to the supposed digital natives in a way that they understand, the way in, with what they can relate with. And most times we'll say blockchain is a truth machine. Blockchain is, uh, encourages transparency. And recently, we had to explain to some young kids in Ghana what blockchain is all about. I was handling a session, and I looked at what they can relate with. And there's something called the Ifa, you know, deity in the Yoruba culture of Nigeria. It's like a predictive traditional system where the Ifa priest would use some coins or cowries, they drop it on a platform, and then they interpret the pattern spiritually, right? And the beauty of the Ifa uh, deity is that if you bring 10 Ifa priests to look at the patterns of the cowries on the platform, they would interpret it the same way, right? So I use that to explain the blockchain technology that this is uh, a consensus, this is a network where different actors are, and all the actors on the um, network can see what is happening, which means it drives transparency, it drives you know, integrity, and is decentralized. So I think the digital natives also need understanding of what they can relate with when it comes to the blockchain technology. I think when people... Sometimes when I understand something in my native language, I take the knowledge better and I innovate with the knowledge better. And I think that's one of the beauty of education from our side for the digital natives. I would add to that. I know a couple of years ago, um, four years ago, I think a friend of mine was going to do a presentation and he, start, he started to explain blockchain just using, you know, dictionary terms. And I said, the best way to explain it, particularly when it comes to digital, is in the Bahamas, they have something um, they call super value stamps. And if you spend a certain amount of money, you get these little stamps. And if you keep enough of them, you get something, I think it's 60. You get like a dollar, it's worth a dollar you can spend. And I said, 
talk about that because right away they'll understand that it's just a different form of value. And if you keep those little booklets with the 60 stamps that are worth a dollar and you sort of put that on something that's digital and then I didn't want to get too technical, imagine the impact you can actually feed kids in orphanages by using the just maybe stamps you throw away in a jar and you never think anything up. But think about how you can, if you caught that same $1 value on your phone, how you can give that back to the community. And I tried to do it in a very simple way. And I was really glad that he, when he went to and, and he did the presentation, he described it at that, as that because it, it, it was something they could relate to. Yeah, and I love this idea of, of you have to always be culturally fluent and relevant, right? But what I find mm-hmm. fascinating is that around the world, there are so many different metaphors, analogies that can be used because something about this technology is intuitive. Like philosophically, there is something intuitive people are capable of grasping. And when they get that nugget, then the rest of it kind of opens up this new universe, right? Then you see why, okay, learning how to maybe code in this or maybe learning how to deploy it or learning about the application, it becomes really interesting. I love, Rhonda, what you said about code switching. And I think I've had the privilege of a very global career. And so certainly the vocabulary that I use, if I'm in Europe or if I'm in India, which is my native place, or if I'm in the U.S., and even in varying states in the U.S., you know, is different. And so recognizing that this is, yes, this is a global technology and it is, uh, it spans, you know, partisanship, politics, cultures, and everything else. Nevertheless, for us to understand adoption curves, for us to understand why there has been so much attraction from high growth economies for the opportunities here requires a cultural lens, even though technology itself is, you know, technically, literally neutral. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that from each of you, just about this concept that you both operate within high growth economic ecosystems, right? Both in the Caribbean and islands, Bahamas specifically, and of course, all across Africa. Again, huge diversity, of course, but I know you do work pan-Africa at the African Washington Institute. So how do you feel that that opportunity, coupled with the fact that, you know, you do have a demographic that skews younger, you do have a lot of appetite for what is the next, you know, wave of economic opportunity, of job growth, of job creation, you have a lot of appetite there, which is not true everywhere in the world. So how do you feel like that influences or impacts both the approach you take institutionally from your two different academies or an institute, but also the kinds of folks that you see coming to you, right? Like when you kind of do your outreach or whatnot, do you feel like there's a lot of appetite based on the economic system that you're operating within? Maybe this time we'll start with you, Alvishan. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And I agree with everything you've said around, you know, the the appetite for growth and innovation uh, from this part of the world. And I think in Africa, we could actually see in some ecosystems that blockchain is truly a rebellious technology. Uh, And I'm very careful with that word rebellious. But the truth is that despite the clam dance, despite the show of ignorance by most governments, we can see a lot of young people in Africa are creating opportunities and innovation with the blockchain technology every day. I'll give an example of Nigeria where most of the traditional banks are, are not really interoperable with international banks. And a lot of big business people in Nigeria need to do business out, outside of Africa, in America, in Central Europe. And they cannot access, um, have, they, they don't have access to the volume of the fiat US dollars they need for business abroad. The best way to go is to use cryptocurrency. We also have a lot of young people who, some people want to pay for something worth $50 and they cannot spend more than $20 on their traditional bank cards. So the best way to go is crypto, right? Uh, I was looking at the peer-to-peer transaction volume in Africa. Um, between January uh, 2022 and now, 
It's $63 million, uh, just peer-to-peer, -peer, all across Africa. Nigeria leading the way, followed by South Africa and followed by Kenya. So um, a lot of young people are innovating. Uh, in the research that we've done around eight countries in Africa now, we can see grassroots innovation. And now, outside of crypto, because crypto seems to be the biggest use cases, there's proliferation of crypto exchanges and you know, payment systems. But we can see other unique innovation around music royalty on the blockchain. We can see uh, the two startups that went through our incubation program. Uh, they had their demo day a few days ago. They are working in prop tech with the blockchain technology, one from Egypt, one from Zimbabwe. And these are investment-ready innovations by young people in Africa between the ages of 20 and, and 30. So it, it's interesting to see that despite the ignorance of uh, policymakers, despite the ignorance of the old monies, because the old monies in Africa, they don't believe in uh, technology investment. Many of them made their money from agriculture, mining, government contracts. So when you tell them about seed funding for technological innovation and investment, they don't understand it. What they understand is plant and harvest. I think the blockchain developers community in Africa has grown by at least 2,000 new developers who are learning all the programming languages and getting better and sharpening their skills every day. So it's really interesting to see that despite the lack of support and the lack of understanding from those who are supposed to create innovative policies, creative policies for experimentation of the blockchain technology, young people are still going ahead. And I believe that it, it, it is just a matter of time. And that's why we are very serious about education, because we, from research, we've seen that the government usually listens to the academia. And blockchain technology has not gained grants in the academia in Africa. And that is what we are paying attention to. By January 2024, we hope to welcome the first set of students for the Masters of Science in Blockchain Technology, the first ever in Africa, hosted by investors of Namibia and Africa Blockchain Institute. We believe that when policymakers start coming to those master's programs, when students graduate and mid-level managers in government, when they go back, they're able to inform the government correctly and then blockchain technology can be accelerated in acceptance and innovation on the continent. So my approach has been, it's been very interesting because I started out working with individuals who were displaced in work um, after the financial crisis. And the first event I did um, on blockchain was in 2017. I was absolutely shocked at seven o'clock in the morning, people had traveled two hours. So we started there and then I sort of moved into uh, doing some events in the Bahamas, working with the central bank there for the first um, summit that they did. And I did something with government. And then I went to the school. And what was interesting there was that a lot of entrepreneurs and professionals stayed all day and, and teachers, they just stayed. It wasn't just blockchain because I'm coming from the finance alternative investment world. So I was keen to sort of break down the, the, the language in the worlds, you know, the two different worlds. So people who were probably working somewhere, they were like, what you're showing the kids, I stayed all day and I came every day because I, I found it very helpful. And so it's, it, it was very unconventional. And I make it very clear to people that I am not an educator. Like, you know, I, I don't come from academia. But what I found was in that, in building teams and starting companies in the Americas, I found that education was the game changer with my staff and the people I worked with. If you educated them, you did not have to micromanage them because they were able to think. 
So um, these are the types of things I found that those soft human skills that are needed right now, as opposed to, okay, you get your foundational skills, but these are, char- these, these are other skills, character and competencies. And I found those were the things that were very important. And so I've worked with a group of individuals, like, you know, different groups rather. So, you know, working with people in academia, working with people like students, working with, um, right now I'm on the global board of Hedge Funds Care, and they were really skeptical about bringing crypto into the nonprofit, their nonprofit arena. But they're all, they work with hedge funds. So I said, so you work with hedge funds, you work with trying to uh, address two major issues in the alternative space. You want to raise money and give money to organizations that deal with, uh, to protect and to stop child abuse. I said, blockchain can work for that, right? You could use blockchain. So Michael, and Michael knows this because I invited Michael and, and his wife to come to our event. I said, I want to break down the walls that we need to bring this now into a global organization that dealing with Imagine human trafficking. Imagine, you know, what you can do with this technology. So I think that working with all these different stakeholders, I have learned a lot about how we need to change the language. We need to change access and inclusion and sharing the knowledge at a very granular level and be very bold to what you said. Not not be um, arrogant about it, but like this is out there and this can help, but let's just get it to the people who can actually use it in their communities to make a difference. And when we do that, we do have the ability to affect change to, um, how, you know, everyone talks about adoption and scaling. Well, it doesn't come if you don't do it bottom up. This top down, we make the money and then we'll get to the people at the bottom. It doesn't work. We've seen that right now. That's what the crypto markets are going through. We need to really change the way we engage with people um, in a genuine way, right? Those kids coming to, um, to the conference, Michael, one of the 17-year-olds the said, I could read all day about the stuff, Mrs. Eldridge, but coming here and meeting people and talking to them, it's changed my, my way of seeing the world. And I think that's what I'm really passionate about. Striking the runner as well is, is the level of engagement that your government has uh, had with these communities, with these students, and just generally with, with the technology, which sounds quite mm-hmm. different from, uh, although I say you, you're, you're describing in terms of academia not being on board, it's almost mm-hmm. as if in the Bahamas we have a level of institutional support coming right from the government itself, mm-hmm. and, in, and you know, in Rwanda and other parts of Africa, not quite the same, right? So you, and I just wonder, mm-hmm. like, if you could maybe each of you just talk to how important or, or otherwise it is, because in some respects, you talked about, uh, uh, saying this kind of being a rebellion sort of technology. Well, in some respects, that speaks to learning without that institutional support. And sometimes mm-hmm. governmental control can distort what this is all about. But on the other hand, clearly it gives a legitimacy and it gives an opportunity. So I don't know, maybe if you can just talk a little bit to, to, that, to those challenges and how they're different. Rhonda, wh- how important is that governmental support that you've had for this process? I think it's been extremely important because when you look at affecting change, sometimes we want to be rebellious. But if you, for, for what I looked at, I had, some, I had an advisor, and I remember the date that I, he, you know, January the 2nd, 2018, he said, start with government, start with, because a lot of people wanted to, to collaborate, start with government. And so that's how we came to working with the central bank. And within six weeks, we put an event together. 
and Central Bank brought in other stakeholders. The second event, Michael, you were there as a keynote speaker. We bought Michael's book. I think we bought a case of them. We then brought in different stakeholders. And that was, uh, I think, the first global uh, crypto and blockchain event done by a government globally. I could be corrected on that. But we found that there may have been, you had the skeptics, don't get me wrong. But I think that I had been working with these individuals for such a long time. When I started talking about crypto and blockchain, there was a, Michael, to your point, there was some level of trust. But some people thought, what happened to you? You, Why are you talking like this? Why are you hanging out with these people? But I think that I came into blockchain and regtech blockchain. I started working with a startup company. So I came in with the technology, having had uh, a long career in finance um, on a, on a, and, and there was a level of trust. So going from central bank to the government and then the kids and just starting to think, okay, let's go bottom up. I don't know if you would call that sort of going 360, but I found that was very helpful. And I tried to, and I was very much about being respectful of the old guard, being respectful and understanding and trying to explain rather than convince. That I found was helpful. I, I mean, I may, may be wrong. Well, I was saying we've had a number of people from, you know, the continent speak to us as well. And they, they describe a very different situation, of course, like, you know, there are Nigerian activists who use Bitcoin and their struggles against the government. And, and there is a real ethos, it seems, across the continent of just self-help and using this technology to build systems that get around the old guard. So what is your view? Do you, do you need to have the support of the government or are you encouraging people to build their own solutions outside of that institutional <laughs> support? Yeah, uh, it's quite uh, interesting to hear that from your end. Uh, the government was supportive from the beginning. The opposite is the case in most part of Africa. If you want anything, you want to do anything um, that would fly, build up quickly, don't start with the government. And like Michael said, uh, during the NSAS struggle in Nigeria, uh, most of the young people who were leading the struggle, uh, they raised um, a lot of funds via crypto, and it was highly coordinated. And it was after then that the government saw that the power of the young people with crypto was intimidating. And once the government don't understand something in most part of Africa, they clamp down on it rather than set mm -hmm. up a system for them to learn about it or to have a mm -hmm. round table with the young people. Mm -hmm. They would rather clamp down on it and just, you know, cancel whatever you're doing. And that tells mm -hmm. me that no matter how innovative the private sector is or the startup ecosystem for a technology, no matter how vibrant, no matter how progressive they are, if there is no um, proper uh, experimentation environment or good policies to support the evolution of that technology, it might be very difficult for the private sector. And we've seen that in most part of Africa. So uh, for Nigeria, I think when the government clamped down on crypto, a lot of crypto companies actually went into extinction, while some of them moved to, to, to the UAE. And for those who were able to move abroad, because a lot of startups also in Nigeria now are registering in, in the U.S. because they know that one day the government might just wake up and clamp down on whatever they're doing and they wouldn't want to lose their operation. So they quickly move to another client, right? And that is um, an innovation drain for, for the country, right? But uh, for examples of African countries that are really open to innovation, even without understanding fully what this new technology is about, is Rwanda. Rwanda is really open to innovation, experimentation, and also. You know, just from use our space as a, um, 
as a platform for experimentation and discovery. And I think that is the support every new technology or any new team of young people coming together to, to innovate with a new technology. But with what we've seen in the eight countries we've studied deeply for now, don't start with the government because it's very dangerous. It's better for you to have built sideways and then um, there's a roundtable in the future or there's a pressure for a sandbox. For example, in Nigeria now, the startup bill was just passed by the Senate, which um, definitely is going to bring back some sanity into the crypto ecosystem. Now, there's also the um, Security Exchange Commission um, clauses on crypto companies. And crypto companies in Nigeria now will need to pay $250,000 in deposits, you know, for them to even get registered, you know. So that will not be a problem for young people. At least we are getting there. At least they are allowing people to register now. And then once you have the money, you can start your crypto company. In most part of Africa, there is the wait and see approach to the blockchain technology and crypto, which is not helping the innovation ecosystem. The very first Bitcoin automated teller machine in Africa was in Zimbabwe. And machine was really helping hyperinflation uh, when people want to convert their financial fortunes to crypto and digital assets. It was really helping the ecosystem, but the company shut down that company and they banned, they seized the ATM, their machines. The company had to close down. So that's a sign that no matter how innovative you are, no matter how progressive you are in your thinking with this new technology, we still need the government to be on board and understand what we are doing and create an, a, a, an enabling environment for that innovation to scale. And that is what we are very passionate about in Africa now because a lot of young people, the problem in Africa is not innovation. The problem is stifling of innovation by those who are supposed to give it the breathing space for it to grow. I mean, I got to tell you, it is so inspiring hearing you both, right? Like such different contexts. And yet the focus on youth, the appetite for innovation, the understanding intuitively and through the education that you both provide, through the models you've created and the institutes you've created around engagement with the future is so inspiring, exciting, promising. There's so much potential here. And so I was really excited to do an episode focusing not on the U.S. or Europe, despite the fact that in the last couple of weeks, we've had so much discussion in the press about the policy happening in the U.S. and Europe and this and that. Because to me, I think the opportunity that high growth economies reflect and the way that this technology is getting picked up and used and deployed and the fact that it's not just focused on financial services to the points you raised at the beginning and even now, right? The folks that the idea that the technology and Web3 and this ecosystem, this peer-to-peer -peer engagement is about so much more than that, I think is incredibly powerful. So I know Michael joins me in just in thanking you for coming on the show. Olubashe and Adepojo and Rhonda Eldridge, our guests today, so grateful you decided to focus your energies and considerable talents on educating uh, the next generation and the generations to follow uh, and love what that's doing for that reverse education where even in the U.S. we're hearing uh, policymakers hear that their grandchildren are the ones who are getting them interested in this technology. And so I think we're seeing more and more of that around the world. But thank you so much to you both. It's really an inspiration and a pleasure to have you on. Uh, to everyone listening, stay tuned next week or join us next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guests Oluwashiun Adepoju and Rhonda Eldridge. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. 
or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.